Thank you, Dan. Be sure to wish our lead pastor a happy birthday today. He's 40 years old today, so when you see him, tell him happy birthday. And good morning to all of you. It's so good to see you today. We're going through the Beatitudes where Jesus is talking to us about the good life. What does it look like to flourish in his kingdom? And it's deeply counterintuitive, even paradoxical. Uh, G.K. Chesterton called a paradox, truth standing on its head and calling for attention. And that's what Jesus is doing in these words of beatitude in Matthew 5. If you turn there in your Bible, he's calling for attention by turning the values of this world upside down. This world prizes things like being entitled, being carefree, being pushy, being vengeful, argumentative, popular. But Jesus says the weight of flourishing and the life in his kingdom is not what you would expect. It's not the things this world values. But if we will hear what Jesus has to say to us this morning, we will recognize his goodness and we will experience his joy in our lives. So let's listen to our Lord as he speaks to us from Matthew 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 and let's worship Jesus as he speaks. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks be to God for the living word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the help of your spirit as your word comes to us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I grew up in the church singing songs like, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And I, I remember a song I learned in Sunday school that was, was called Happy All the Time. And that's pretty much all it said is, I am happy, 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 happy in the Lord. Praise God, I'm born again, trusting in his word. I want you to know how happy I am. I am happy, happy, happy in the Lord. And I remember seeing those songs as a kid, even then as a child, thinking, hmm, is that really true? <laughs> is that really what it means to be a Christian? Is a Christian someone who's happy all the time? Because even as a child, I knew that I wasn't happy all the time. As I got older, I started to think there's something wrong with this assertion that a Christian is supposed to be 
always happy? And Jesus, I think, would say, yes, there is something wrong with that way of thinking. Look at what Jesus tells us in verse 4. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus says a life that has been touched and shaped by God's grace, a life that is experiencing God's favor, a life that is truly flourishing is a life that involves mourning, sorrow, sadness. John Stott paraphrases verse 4 like this, Happy are those who are not happy, for they will be made happy. Now let's be clear first about what Jesus does not mean when he says blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is not saying blessed are the pessimistic for they will never be disappointed. Or blessed are the gloomy for they will never be overly excited. Or blessed are the miserable for they will never be in danger of having too much fun. Or blessed are the somber for they will never be shallow or superficial. Jesus is not, he is not suggesting that we should never experience moments of lightheartedness or fun or laughter in this life. He's not telling us to walk around moping like Eeyore, you know, the whole world is on my shoulders. But Jesus is teaching that in this life, our ability to experience Real happiness, deep and abiding happiness, is connected to our ability to experience deep sorrow. The Irish poet David White put it like this, You cannot live a sincere human life without heartbreak. In fact, the soul's ability to experience heaven or joy is commensurate with our ability to feel grief. An authentic human life is a mingling of joy and sorrow. We know this is true on the human level. When you love someone deeply, you will mourn painfully when that relationship is broken or when that relationship is torn through death. Mourning is the appropriate response to the loss of something or someone who is precious to you, something that you treasure, someone you hold dear. Mourning honors the value of that relationship. I've never been able to feel at ease when people say, don't cry for me at my funeral. It just seems so unnatural to me. If we love someone dearly, we will cry at their funeral. I, I hope someone's going to cry at my funeral. Jesus wept at the graveside of his dear friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. And we know that Jesus was a joyful man. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions, it says. But the Bible actually never tells us that Jesus laughed. I'm guessing he probably did laugh. But the Bible never says Jesus laughed. It does say Jesus wept more than once. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with with grief. And in the Bible, these, these two dispositions, sorrowful yet rejoicing, 
they're not contradictory to one another. We should not live as if the, the biblical command to rejoice in the Lord always somehow cancels out the other biblical command to weep with those who weep. We should expect there to be a mingling of joy and sorrow in our lives, just like there was in Jesus' life. But I'd like to go a little deeper into what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Because the, the kind of heart that Jesus is applauding here is not only merely the, the kind of sorrow that all human beings experience when we, when we lose something dear to us. There's a, a kind of sorrow here that, that comes from a deeper source than just mere natural grief. Jesus is commending here a mourning that flows out of a recognition of what we heard last week in the first beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is applauding there those who have come to the end of themselves. If you've come to recognize, like Charles Spurgeon puts it, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. If you recognize, yeah, that's true. I admit that. I embrace that. Jesus says, if, if you see that that's the truth about yourself... Rejoice because you're on the path of flourishing. You're experiencing the life that's truly blessed. If your hands are filled with the, the pebbles of your own self-righteousness, you can't embrace the gold of Christ's righteousness. If your heart is all filled up with kind of the, the, the murkiness of your own goodness, God can't pour in the wine, the rich wine of Christ's grace, and righteousness. But when you've come to the end of yourself, when you've declared spiritual bankruptcy, you know it, you believe that is true of yourself, then Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Now let's think about how that beatitude, the first one, relates to this second one. To be poor in spirit is to confess that I am nothing apart from Christ, but Confession without contrition is inadequate. It's one thing to acknowledge your sinfulness. It's another thing to actually abhor your sin. So the second beatitude follows necessarily from the first. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, is about what happens when the truth of verse 3 starts to penetrate your heart, when the reality of your spiritual bankruptcy sinks down from your head into your heart, you won't simply have a kind of cold or clinical or detached response. No. The truth of your poverty in spirit will break your stony heart and make it tender, even to the point of weeping. Mourning 
is what happens when the objective reality of our poverty in spirit starts to affect us emotionally. It has a visceral effect. We hear it in the confessions from the Book of Common Prayer. Listen to this one. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. And if there's some resonance in your heart with those words, if you feel like, yes, this is true of me, I acknowledge and I bewail the effect of sin in my life, Jesus is saying to you here in verse 4, you're not weird. You're not out of sync with reality. You're actually flourishing spiritually in his kingdom if you feel this way about your sinfulness. Let me tell you a story about a man who was coming to recognize his poverty in spirit. This is a man in Uganda uh, several decades ago during a time where there was a great spiritual awakening happening in that country and, and real revival. And, and the bishop of the Anglican church at that time, Festo King Barry, I'm sorry, Kevin Gary, writes, I could tell you a case of a man back home, 45 years old, a pagan, illiterate man who knew nothing about Christ. Then he was brought by grace through the preaching of the Christians into the presence of Jesus and him crucified. And that man was so changed that within a month, when impure thoughts came into his heart, he literally went outside from a meeting and vomited. What a standard. What sensitivity. A man steeped in paganism with no Bible training, no background, and now, in the light of Calvary, in that smashing, invading love, this man is taken, recreated, renewed. His conscience is so clean that when impure thoughts came, he even went and physically vomited. A sensitivity had been created. The Holy Spirit had renewed the personality. Is that your case? If you can recognize that something awful happened when humanity became severed from the beauty and the goodness and a right relationship with God the Father when we rebelled against him in the garden and the world is broken as a result. And, and if your heart mourns over what God mourns over and your spirit grieves over what grieves the Holy Spirit and you feel a sorrow over the things that brought Jesus sorrow and drove him to his anguish on the cross, if Jesus has worked that kind of mourning into you, rejoice, he's saying. 
because you're flourishing. You're actually in a happy place spiritually when you're mourning over these things. Now, how can that be? The world doesn't really like mourning. (laughs) And most people aren't going to be saying, happy are the unhappy. So how can this be? Well, I like how Michael Card describes it. He reflects on how we have two English words. They're homophones. Those are words that sound the same but have different spellings and meanings. Morning and morning. Morning and morning. And Michael Card says this. Perhaps what links the two words together is the fact that they both represent moments when we wake up. Clearly, morning is the time when we open our eyes to the hope of a new day. But in another deeper sense, a time of mourning can also be an occasion when we come to our senses and with new, tear-cleansed eyes see the world as we have never seen it before. So let's do a little diagnostic on ourselves to assess Have I woken up? Have I come to my senses? Do I see the world clearly? Am I flourishing spiritually according to Jesus' definition? I'm just going to ask you some diagnostic questions. The first is this. Does the sin that dwells within you make you grieve? Do you grieve over indwelling sin? When you get a glimpse of what the prophet Isaiah experienced when he was in the the temple and he saw the Lord seated on his throne and all the angels and cherubim were, were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And, and, and Isaiah fell on his face and he said, woe is me. For I'm, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. If you can resonate with Isaiah's experience, that you've seen something of, of the holiness of God, and it's made you aware of this disconnect, this distance between where your heart is at and where God and his holiness is, then you can rejoice because you've woken up spiritually. You're alive. You're flourishing in the kingdom of Jesus, God's son, if you have that realization. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when you lament, like the apostle Paul in Romans 7, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If if you hear words like that from the Apostle Paul and you say, yes, I feel the same way, Paul. I, I lament this battle within me wanting to do what is right, but always knowing that evil lies close at hand. If, if you're crying out, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Praise God, 
You're alive. You're flourishing spiritually. When you recognize the pervasive, potent, perverse presence of sin in your heart and it makes you grieve, that's a sign of flourishing. When you hear the stories of the evil that others have done and instead of looking down on them, you realize there's something wrong with you, that's a good sign. Back years ago, Mike Wallace interviewed a man named Denur who had been in Auschwitz. He was a Jewish person who had been put into the concentration camps and, and he was called to be one of the, the witnesses at the Nuremberg War Crime Tribunal in 1961. And when Mike Wallace interviewed this man who had been in the concentration camps, he played the clip of what happened in the courtroom in Nuremberg in 1961 when Denur first walked into that courtroom and saw Adolf Eichmann, one of Hitler's right-hand men who had been in his concentration camp, who was responsible for the deaths of millions. And, and when Denur first saw Eichmann, he began sobbing uncontrollably, to the point that the judge was pounding the gavel, demanding order in the courtroom, and then Denur just fainted in the courtroom. When he was asked why he had such a visceral reaction, was it because of hatred? Was it out of a desire for revenge? The truth, said Denur, was no, it was none of these. All at once, I realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denur. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he Mike Wallace summed up the interview by saying this, Eichmann is in all of us. When you've come to realize that horrifying reality of sin dwelling in you, blessed are you, Jesus says. You're flourishing now. As you learn to mourn over the sin that dwells within you're getting positioned to experience the breathtaking beauty and reality of God's overwhelming grace. Second question. Do the sins of the church provoke you to scorn or to mourn? In our church, in our church family, in God's covenant family. The Apostle Paul admonished the church in Corinth because there was sexual immorality running rampant in the congregation. Paul said it was of a type that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate, and yet the Christians in Corinth kind of seemed like they didn't really care that much. They acted like it was no big deal. And Paul said to them, he cried out, you are arrogant. 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't this concern you? Do you find yourself spiritually sensitive to the effect that gossip could have in our church fellowship? Or do you feel grief in your heart when you see pride and jealousy and divisions and disunity or the seeds of those things in our church? Do you mourn over these and cry out to Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Would you perfect the good work you've begun and your bride, Jesus, and lead us all to repentance and faith and renewal in the gospel and fresh love for one another and for you? It's a sign of flourishing when the sins that are in the body of Christ provoke you not to scorn, but to mourn. Third question. Are you more ready to weep over the world's plight than to condemn the world's perversity? The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do you know that, that kind of response? Or do you know more of the kind of outrage that we're supposed to feel when we watch Fox News or MSNBC or CNN and just angry, 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 angry all the time? Is that, is that what's going on in your heart? Or do your eyes shed streams of tears? Peter in 2 Peter 2 verse 7 and 8 says about Lot in the book of Genesis that he was a righteous man who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Do you know something of that kind of anguish over the world's plight that Lot had? In Ezekiel 9, verse 4, I just read the book of Ezekiel a couple weeks ago. God was preparing to bring judgment on idolaters. And he said to his servant, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. It made me wonder, would I have a mark on my forehead? Do I sigh and groan over the plight of a world that is wickedly rebelling against God? Sometimes we're prepared to condemn the world, but are we prepared to weep over the world? Or sometimes we're, we're right with Jesus when he's saying, whoa, whoa, to the scribes and the Pharisees. But do we stay with Jesus when he goes outside Jerusalem and sits on that hillside and looks over the city and just sobs in his love for the people that he came to save, but they're rejecting him? Fourth question. We sang it this morning. I love that song. Do you feel this world is broken? And do you wish that you could see it all made new? I do. Do you feel that? 
when you see tornadoes and tsunamis and destruction, when you hear about human trafficking and its insidious darkness, what it brings into the lives of children and women, when you see the effects of political corruption and injustice, when you consider the plight of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who die daily without Christ, without God, do you feel grief over a world that is suffering the consequences of humanity's fall and rebellion? When you mourn over these realities, it shows that you're awake. You're flourishing in the new life Christ came to be, bring. You're, you're sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. You're, you're experiencing some of the brokenness of Jesus' heart, the things that broke his heart. Just this week, I heard stories that made me grieve. These weren't in our church, but real people. A woman in her 60s, still struggling today over the sexual abuse that she experienced from her brother when she was a child. And remembering how her parents, when they realized what was going on, instead of dealing with her brother, her mom brought her into her bedroom and said, you need to pray the sinner's prayer. And that was all connected to her coming to faith in Christ. And, and now as her parents are really old and relationships remain very, very strained, there's so much heartache. I heard another woman talk about how she was physically and emotionally abused by her ex-husband. He had a landscaping business, and every time it rained, he abused her because he blamed her for the weather. I read a story about a man whose wife had an affair with a neighbor. And when he turned to the church for help, the church they had been going to, he found that his church was a place where real suffering could not be unmasked. Because in his words, our congregation was an exquisitely handsome farce, a Saturday morning cartoon about a happy land where nothing bad ever happens because nothing bad can ever be allowed to happen because the bad place is somewhere else. We were a Disney park of make-believe where brokenness must be banished. The fairy tale must go on so as not to ruin the experience for the guests. As I read about this man's difficulty in knowing who's ready to mourn with me, it made me wonder, does anyone ever feel that way within our church? I hope not. But I suspect probably it does happen where there's real brokenness, but there's a fear of unmasking it because 
someone's wondering, is this a place where mourning is welcome, acceptable? It was interesting as I was listening to some of these stories being told, there were several people around a table, and I noticed we were all a little bit uncomfortable with hearing someone else talk about their brokenness. And we almost had a tendency to want to change the subject or put on a happier tune or tell a story about me instead of really listening and giving room for the sorrow of someone else to be heard and felt and embraced and acknowledged. Blessed are you, Jesus says, if you mourn over sin, mourn over its effects in your life, mourn over the brokenness of a world that's suffering the ravages of sin, Blessed are you who mourn now because of Christ's promise to those who mourn. What does he promise here? You shall be comforted. This comfort that Christ gives can only be appreciated when you have tasted the sorrow. As one of the Puritans said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Matt Smethurst illustrates it like this. Imagine waking up on the 4th of July. It's a bright, sunny day. You get a text from your friend, meet me at the park for fireworks at 11 a.m. You're thinking, it's got to be a typo. No way they're going to do fireworks at 11 a.m. What good are fireworks in the bright of day? But the darker the night, the more stunning the display. And in the same way, The brilliance of God's grace has to be set against the blackness of sin and the brokenness of this world. If you're mourning, Jesus said, you will be comforted. Blessed are you. You will be comforted because Jesus has a special concern for those who mourn. In the prophet Isaiah chapters 58 through 60, there's a call to God's people to repent and return to the Lord. And then waiting for them in that place of mourning and brokenness and repentance in Isaiah 61 is the servant of the Lord. And he appears on the scene and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's the work of Jesus. And there's no one who can cheer the heart of a person like Jesus can. There is no one who can bring the comfort our souls crave as tenderly as he can. Jesus is able to do it because Jesus has entered fully into the grief and the sorrow and the mourning of our sins and the sins of the world. 
There's no sorrow, no grief that he's not acquainted with. There's nothing that breaks your heart that hasn't first broken his. That's why he's able to sympathize with us and come alongside us in our grief and bring the balm of his compassionate grace. So be comforted. Be comforted when you mourn, knowing that Jesus hears you. He hears you, and he's with you. One of the Puritans said, tears melt the heart of God. And the psalmist said in Psalm 6, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And be comforted when you mourn, knowing this, your weeping will last only a little while. Isaiah looked forward to the day when God's people would have passed through the grief of their exile, mourning over their sins. And then he says in Isaiah 35.10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And Revelation 21 tells us that that day is coming soon when our tear-wiping God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Isn't that going to be the most wonderful thing about heaven? <laughs> to wake up and to realize I'm no longer carrying around this body of sin and death. I don't have any more impure thoughts. I'm not struggling with any more of my relationships. Everything that's been broken has been healed. Everything that's been sad has come untrue. Now everlasting joy is all that awaits. It's going to be so wonderful. It's all possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross. You know, if you listen to this beatitude and you realize I should be mourning more than I am, but my eyes are kind of dry, my heart is kind of cold, my love is kind of anemic, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Come afresh to the cross of Jesus. There, there's something about the cross where it just can only get bigger and bigger and bigger. The more you see of the holiness of God and the deeper you go into the awareness of your sin, it just it creates a chasm that keeps growing and growing and growing. More of God's holiness, more of my unworthiness, but that cross of Jesus is what bridges that gap. And the higher you go into the holiness of God and the deeper you go into the awareness of your sins, it only makes what Jesus has done on that cross more and more precious. So if you want to experience more of the flourishing that he speaks of in this verse, come to the cross today. Picture yourself there. Realize it was your sin that held him there. 
say to him in the words of the old hymn, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see that mock the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. As we come this morning to the Lord's table, don't let your own sense of sinfulness keep you from coming. Realize that's the very thing that qualifies you to come, to draw near, to taste and see the goodness of Jesus who comes to comfort those who mourn. And if all of that Jesus has said to us this morning just has kind of struck a new chord in your heart and you're realizing this is flourishing? To mourn over my sin? And you've never really done that? But you want to experience that? Jesus holds his arms open wide and he welcomes everyone who says, Lord, I see that I need you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will, he definitely will. Believers, as we prepare to take the cup and remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross, Let's just pray these words together from the Valley of Vision. Ask the Lord to do this in our hearts. Let's say this together. Searcher of hearts, grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.